Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin our class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to give thanks to you for the many blessings you have given us throughout this year. As we look back on the last year, we consider all the events that have transpired, and you have truly been gracious to us, and we want our lives to be to be, uh, uh, give glory to you. And we pray that we will shine as lights in this community. Be with us as we study today. May our hearts be lifted up and rejoicing with your presence. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly uh, background characters in the Old Testament. And the lesson title this week is The Man of God, Obedience is Not Optional. Obedience is Not Optional. And if somebody would read in Sunday's lesson for us... <clears throat> The first two paragraphs. After the death of Solomon, the poor judgment of Rehoboam, his son, led to the division of the nation, with King Jeroboam ruling in Israel the northern kingdom and Jeroboam and Judah the southern kingdom. Not long after the break, Jeroboam set the northern kingdom on a very dangerous path. He did not deliberately set out to lead Israel from a worship of God to idolatry. Instead, he was acting from political expediency. He created two centers of worship one at Bethel and one at Dan. He claimed to be trying to make things easier for the Israelites so that they would not have to travel all the way to Jerusalem in order to worship. The golden cows were simply to be a visual reminder of God, not a representation, and were to make worship more credible for the common Israelite. What started as a political move, however, led to the breaking of the Ten Commandments. And as you read these first two paragraphs, could you think of any modern-day examples of where well-intentioned actions or ideas or interventions led away from God. Can you think of any modern-day examples where people were doing, you know, it says here he wasn't intending to lead people away from God. He's trying to do something to be helpful to everyone, but it actually led away from God. Anything like that happened in modern times? Like right now in our day today, 2010. Anything like that can you think of? How about... Um, Attempts to provide a day of rest for people and families that are so exhausted with the cares of life that uh, we move to, to uh, legislate uh, one day a week in which no businesses can be open and so forth. Uh, I mean, in good intentions, let's have rest. Maybe even help the economy. Maybe even help, uh, help with uh, the global warming because everybody will have less uh, carbon outputs on one day a week because we're going to stay at home and rest and, and so forth. All good intended. Maybe it'll have a bad outcome. What do you think? Watch for it. I think it's uh, in Europe. I know it's strong moves in this way already. Very strong moves in this way. What about attempts to to promote life? Good thing to do by restricting liberties, taking away freedoms. Hmm. Another another area possibly. Well, third paragraph in our lesson says, it is necessary to be uh, innovative in worship and adapt worship to our specific cultural context, but we must also be careful. Even a small deviation from the clear command of God has far-reaching effects. In the case of Israel, the golden calves led the nation on a path toward blatant sin, but things did not stop there. Jeroboam was obliged to make other changes as well. He wanted to persuade some of the Levites living within the borders to serve as priests at the newly established shrines. However, they saw the danger dangers and were not prepared to contradict God's commands. Thus, Jeroboam was compelled to make priests of common people, which in turn degraded the sacred office. Thoughts about this paragraph? Any ideas pop in your mind? Any question marks? Any things you wanted to process over? Do we accept it as face value? This is the 
just the way it is. Even small deviations from the clear command of God has far-reaching effects. Let's look at that sentence first. Any examples besides the one in our lesson today? What about taking a piece of fruit? On the surface, it appears to fairly minor problem, doesn't it? I mean, not a big deal, just a piece of fruit. Why was, why was it so significant? Anybody know why it was so significant? Yes. It was an expression of their mistrust of God. Ah, there you go. You see, the taking of the piece of fruit in and of itself really wasn't that big a deal, but it was an expression of something else, and that was a big deal. And we have uh, out of Review and Herald, January 5, 1886, Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. See, the issue of taking the fruit was manifestation of something much more significant that had already happened in their heart and mind. And so uh, sometimes the things that appear insignificant on the outside are revelation of something much more significant on the inside. Yes? A very small thing, like I was talking to a single mother today. She didn't go to church. She's tired. And her two little boys are going to be home. I mean, I can think how this could affect the children. If they're tired, they don't have to go to church. thing with Esau's offering... Esau's offering. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Do small deviations matter? Well, an analogy, if you have a compass that is off by one degree, just one degree, maybe even half a degree, and you are traveling cross-country according to your compass, will it make a difference in where you end up? Yes, it will. Of course it will. Pardon? The farther you go, the more the difference. The farther you go, the more the difference. That's right. Can we think of any examples in which this idea is abused? What I mean by that is how this truth, the truth of the importance of not deviating from God's express commands, gets twisted to result in people who think they are keeping God's express commands but are actually opposed to him. Do you follow that or did I confuse you? The Jews in Christ's day. The Jews in Christ's day. For instance, let's look at an express command. Did God give an express command regarding Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy? Yes. Express command, keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day? Keep it holy. Did God give express commands on all permutations of all behaviors over all times on Sabbath? No. No. So could someone in seeking to keep the Sabbath holy, an express command of God, uh, be offended at Christ healing on the Sabbath? Yes. And actually crucify Christ? So this idea, we don't want to deviate from any express command, can, if we're not careful, cause us to actually stand in the way of God's kingdom. What about today? Could we, as Sabbath keepers, be God's enemies while keeping the Sabbath? Hmm. If a person goes to eat at a restaurant on Sabbath, does that mean they're breaking an express command of God? Okay, I'm meddling now, aren't I? (laughs) can you tell if someone is God's enemy or God's friend by the way they observe Sabbath or whether they observe Sabbath at all no can you tell I've heard heard some yeses in here I've heard some noes hmm 
What do y'all think? We don't know their motives. We don't know the motives. Oh. The Jewish people observe the, cat, the Sabbath very, very carefully, a lot more carefully than what we probably do today, and yet they ended up being God's enemies. By their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits of Sabbath keeping you shall know them. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> well, actually, that's right. It's character fruit, isn't it? And if you, re- if you take that text, by their fruit you shall know them, and look at the context, it's as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, as you've fed the hungry and clothed the naked and ministered to the sick and visited those in jail. And care- These are the fruits that we will know them by, not by Sabbath keeping. But remember Corinthians 13, without love doesn't mean anything, and the highest expression of obedience is love. Which is ministering to other people, this giving. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, The last sentence of the paragraph states, Jeroboam was compelled to make priests of common people, which in turn degraded the sacred office. What do you think about this idea being expressed? Not the fact that he did it. He did it. He He made priests of common people. The lesson is suggesting that this, is, is, is resulted in, in degrading the sacred office. Thoughts about that? My question is, who's doing the compelling? I think the implication of that sentence is simply uh, because no Levites, no Levites would comply and Jeroboam was set on having priests, uh, the situation compelled him. If he wanted to have priests and no Levites would be priests, then he had to have priests that are not Levites. So question, um, do you agree that, uh, that with the conclusion of the quarterly on this that, yes, there were two golden calves involved. How sacred was it? Two golden calves. So you're suggesting um, it really wasn't related to the priests not being Levites. It was really related to the type of worship they were doing. Okay, I see some other heads on it. Other thoughts about this idea? Because they're suggesting that uh, you know they deviated from the express command about priests being from the house of Levi, and therefore, because of that, the, the priesthood was degraded. Yes? priesthood of believers. Ah, see, good, good thought. See, this is what I like. You know, bring in other scriptures, bring in other passages. Exactly right. Um, if this is the reason um, that the priesthood was degraded, are we suggesting that it, the genetics are what determines a, a healthy priesthood? No, because look at the sons of Eli. Okay. What about Melchizedek? Was Melchizedek a, a priest of God? Yes, he was not a priest of Eli. So, wait a minute. You, 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 you can be outside the tribe of Levi and be a priest of God? Wow, interesting. What about Jesus? Jesus. Was Jesus, uh, is Jesus our high priest? Yes. What tribe was he from? Judah. Judah. Hmm. So. The Bible calls uh, Moses' father in law priest of God. He was not a Levite. Moses' father-in-law, priest of God. Yes, and of course, you brought up the priesthood of believers. Uh, do we believe that the church is composed of the priests of believers? Do we believe that? Are we descendants of Levi? Are we allowed to be a priest, a believing priest of God today if we're not descended from Levi? Or are we degraded? Is the church degraded because we're not all Levites? Well, let's turn the argument around. If priests are from Levi during Bible times, during this time of, of ancient Israel, if they are only from Levi, does that mean you are going to get a pure priesthood? Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Samuel's sons. Jeremiah 2.8 tells us that the priests of Levi led the children of Israel into pagan worship constantly. So then, 
What do you think? How do we understand? What was it that degraded the priesthood? Yes. I think it is an issue of a willingness to step away from God's recommendations. If you're willing to put away God's recommendations, then you're willing to go other directions away from God. And separation from God is a definition of sin. Mm -hmm. It's a direction. I, I like it very much. What would be at the root of that? What would cause a person to willingly go again? What motivates, for instance, Lucifer in heaven? What was the motivation for Lucifer to step away from God and his directions? Self-exaltation. Pride. Pride, self-exaltation, selfishness. Yes. Beauty. 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 Okay. Pride, yes, looking at self. Okay, other thoughts? Distrust, same thing that caused Eve to step away. Distrust, okay. Which came as the deception of someone who was all about himself, right? So, do we see these motives that you just pointed out, Wendell, in, in the class, at the root of what corrupted the priesthood in Israel? Was it the motives of... Uh, His motives. What were Jeroboam's motives? Self. Self. He was fearful that they'd go down to Judah and see something better and not come back. That his kingdom would be undermined. It was a political, it was a power. He wanted power. He, want, he wanted self. To, was he concerned about leading the children of Israel to a close relationship with God? No. Was he concerned about seeing the people of Israel have converted hearts and minds? Was he like John the Baptist? I want God to increase and I want to decrease. Was that what he was doing? Or was Jeroboam very concerned about making sure he held on to his political capital? Which put self at the center. So as I read this, what corrupted the priesthood to me was the issue of rejecting the truth about God, who he is, his principles, his kingdom, his methods, uh, practicing the methods of self-promotion, self-exaltation, um, and, and, and putting them under the guise of something spiritual. That's what was corrupting. And then, of course, that leads us away. When we do that, then we walk away from God. We won't follow his instructions. We won't follow his guidance because we have a better way because his guidance might result in us losing something we want for ourselves. Yes? Those are a lot of tax dollars going south. A lot of tax dollars going south. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. We need some border patrol, don't we? Yeah. So was the primary problem in the corrupt priesthood simply genetics or was it a heart character issue? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Because and this, this is important today still. I had a discussion this week with somebody who believes that genetic Israel over there in the Middle East has a special, a special dispensation and avenue into heaven that's different from every other person ever living on earth because they're genetically descended from Abraham. And that, you know, the church is going to be raptured off and all those things. And then Israel, because they're genetically, biologically descended from Abraham, now they get a second, uh, a special pass into heaven. Does God make his decisions based on gene pool? No. <clears throat> Remember, we're all one family descended, as Paul makes the case, we're Adam and a second Adam. First Adam, second Adam. We're all descended from the first Adam in sin, and we can accept second Adam as our new head of our, of our human family. Become part of that family. All right, it's Monday's lesson. This is the story of Jeroboam. Jeroboam sets up new places of worship in Israel. He builds altars and golden calves. A young prophet of God is dispatched uh, from Judah to warn the king. Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings 13. We're going to start with verse 1. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. 
As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offering, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, O altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. The same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord will declare. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. First question. Did a king arise some 200 years later, named Josiah, and actually do what this prophet foretold? Yes. And if you're not sure, look in 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23, you'll find a king named Josiah rose and did exactly what this prophet said would do. How was the prophet able to so accurately predict that a mother someday down the road would name her son Josiah and that this king would one day choose to take actions to tear down the high places, to burn the, the, the bodies and the bones of the false prophets on this altar? How could he, this prophet know what individuals down the road would choose to do? God revealed what does this imply? Or what does this not imply? What is this evidence of? It's evidence of something. God always speaks this and reveals things before they happen. Is it evidence that God knows our choices before we make them? Yes. Do you know this is a big debate in our church? There's this thing called open theism, where people believe that God doesn't actually know what you will do. He only knows what you might do. He knows all the possible choices you might make because he's a great cosmic calculator in the sky who can calculate all the possible permutations of every decision every individual being could make through all the universe and know all the possible outcomes of everything. So he knows all the possibilities. But he doesn't actually know which one you make until you make it. This is open theism. You understand this story is evidence that that's not true. This wasn't, you know, one day there might be a king named Josiah who might come and burn these bones. This wasn't a possibility. This was spoken as a reality, and it came to pass. So this is evidence that refutes that entire way of thinking. Any thoughts about that? So let's keep reading. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not even pull it back. Also, the altar split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede, intercede with your Lord, the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord, and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. What do you think about this section of the story? Imagine being there. Imagine watching this. Can you put yourself, imagine, okay, church, so uh, pastor's up there preaching. He's preaching something maybe that we think is really, really, you know, like two golden calves. And let's say a prophet of the Lord walks in and in front of the whole congregation rebukes him. And the pastor talks to the elders and the deacons, grab that man and get him out of here. And his arm shrivels up. And then the pastor turns ashen white. And prays, pray that, the, that my arm will be restored. And the prophet prays and the arm's restored. You're sitting in the pew watching this. <laughs> Tell me, what would, you, what would you think? 
Would you be tweeting and texting? (laughs) You're not going to believe this. What happened? What happened? First question. Was God punishing Jeroboam when he stuck out his hand and his arm withered? Do you know this is uh, one way it's viewed? God punished him. Judgment was sent down on Jeroboam. Punishment. Was he? This is the question I'm not putting out to you. Okay, this is how it's viewed. How do we view what happened here? Was God, because of Jeroboam's arrogance, because of Jeroboam's rebellion, because of Jeroboam's attempt to, to seize the prophet of the Lord, his arm shrivels up. Was God punishing him? I think it was as a lesson to the people. Think it through. What was, yes? I would say protection. It's probably protecting the prophet. Okay. What was the purpose in God in sending the prophet to Israel to have this confrontation of the verse. What was God's purpose in sending him here? Warn them. Was it to punish and destroy, or was it to warn, save, and redeem? Okay, this was a message of mercy that the prophet was bringing, was it not? A message to take a people that are about to turn down a path of self-destruction and try and turn them back to the way of salvation. So when God's prophet is bringing this message, is God sending the prophet because God is angry and wants to punish? No, he's wanting to save. And so when the hand is reached out and it withers up, is this punishment or is this further attempts by God to reach the people, reach the king, and restore them? This is not punishment. This is mercy. This is grace. You, you, You see grace in action here. What a loving God who intervened to even these hard hearted, stone hearted people. He's gonna he's gonna intervene to try and reach. So when this miracle, what would you how how would you have responded if you've seen this? Well, have the king respond? Did he humbly repent, get on his knees, see the error of his ways, acknowledge God as the Lord in heaven, seek to, to lead the people down to Jerusalem for worship as God designed? Did, did he humble, repent? And I mean, his hand just withers, boom. His hand's restored, boom. Yeah. I am wrong. No, he more arrogant. Think that through. What, what lesson do we learn from this? Did you sit here from 2010 looking back on that and go, man, that guy was stupid. How could anybody be that dumb? Do we sometimes look back on it like that? Well, is this the only time in, 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 in biblical history we have this accounting? See, I'm going to suggest to you this is what happens. Why did it happen this way? Why didn't he repent? Because miracles do not change character. Miracles don't change character. This is why the scriptures say in, in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. And how does the Spirit work? What's its method? Changing hearts and minds. The Spirit of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. You have to weigh these things. Everybody has to be fully persuaded in their own mind before it makes a change. So let's look at evidence of history. Has God used miracles before? How about the ten plagues of Egypt? Miracles? And the children of Israel, what, what, 40 days later? What are they doing? That's the first golden calf. We've got the second one here. Miracles didn't prevent them from worshiping a golden calf. How about fire coming down? We'll see sometime after Jeroboam. We've got Ahab as a king, and they're worshiping Baal. And Elijah comes, and fire comes down from heaven. And what do all the people do? They fall down. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, right? And after that, children of Israel, faithful and loyal. God got true repentance, right? 
No. They acknowledged it with their head, but not their hearts. How about the people who came to arrest Christ in Gethsemane? The angel flashes for divinity flashes out. They fall down as dead men. Peter goes, try to wax an ear. Jesus picks the ear up, right back on. Everybody sees this and they go, wow, this must be the Lord, right? Let's repent. No, let's crucify him. Think it through. Miracles don't bring conversion. Christ did lots of miracles and people were coming out for the show, remember? And what did he do? He stopped doing them. Because they weren't hearing truth. They were just coming out for a show. Today, someone comes to church and performs a miracle. Does that mean what the person is, is teaching is true? No. Look at the serpent who spoke in Eden. If you're home tonight and your cat or dog starts talking to you, <laughs> that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. How, think, just think through that, how, what your reaction would be. Would you be calling for an exorcism or would you be saying, Lord, what's your message to me? <laughs> I mean, a donkey spoke to Balaam, right? We've got counsel of this happening. It, wouldn't it freak you out? Yes, it would. This is why God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Because miracles don't provide evidence and truth that frees our minds from lies and distortions. It is the truth about God that he reveals over time, ultimately through the life of Christ, that we reason through. And when we embrace that, we are transformed in the process. That's what he's wanting us to do. So let's continue on. Verse 7. The king said to the man of God, come home with me and have something to eat and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come. Now, there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him which, which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle the donkeys for me. And uh, when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and said, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water, uh, water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel, the, uh, angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Notice the next words in scripture. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord. You have not kept the commandment the Lord your the God has given you. You've come back and ate bread and drank water in a place where he told you not to eat and drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, the lion met him on the road and killed him, and his body was thrown down on the road, and both the donkey and the lion standing by it. You like this story? <laughs> what do you think? 
Was the old prophet a false prophet or a true prophet? False. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Both, I hear. Both. Was he a prophet of Baal? Was he a prophet of, of Ashtoreth? Was he a prophet of the Lord? His motivation to lie. Doesn't tell us that, does it? Right. It doesn't tell us his motivation. All it, tell, all it tells us is that he lied. But God can use any prophet, whether it be of his own prophet or of Satan's, because he created. God can use any prophet, really. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, God force people against their will to act his cause. No. no. We have one example. Where? Balaam. Balaam's will was to curse Israel for, for his own gain. He wasn't forced, though. The Lord intervened to dissuade him. Didn't the Lord put other were a blessing in his mouth instead of a curse? The Lord, in, reasoning why he did. the Lord inspired him. <laughs> the Lord didn't force him. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Do you think at any point Balaam became robotic? Uh, and there's no free will there. There's no individuality anymore. Some people think yes. I don't think so. We actually studied Balaam in one of our lessons about two years ago. We went through this whole discussion. So if you're interested, why don't you go back and look that lesson up and listen to it? Because we went through the whole discussion and the evidence on how God inspired and led Balaam to, to cooperate. Balaam, Balaam was very selfish. Balaam, Balaam realized it was in his best interest to go along with God. He realized, uh, given the context of what he was dealing with, that he couldn't get his reward and curse Israel. That he would lose in the end. Back to the story we're at hand here. Was the prophet a true prophet, old prophet, bo- I mean, a true prophet, false prophet, both? Does this give us any insight in how we, should, how we today should relate to prophets? How should we relate to prophets? To the word and to the testimony. If they speak not according to these things, there's no light in them. So what, what are the tests then of a prophet? If a prophet makes a prophecy and it doesn't come true, then what? I hear thumbs down. I hear his head shaking. What? 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 False prophet. Okay. What about Jonah? What about Jonah? Jonah, true prophet. No, there was no condition on Jonah's prophet. Show me a condition in Jonah's prophecy. There's no ifs. No. No, there was no call to repentance. Uh, Jonah's prophecy is that Assyria is going to, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. It's not repent or be destroyed. It's Nineveh is going to be destroyed. It was eventually. <laughs> oh, it was eventually. <laughs> Convenient, isn't it? Yes. The, the main thing was the warning. He sent Jonah to warn that it was going to be destroyed because they were warned, they repented. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And this is how we understand prophecy. The pro- what, about, what about Micaiah? When Micaiah came to Ahab. Ahab and Ahab, remember the story. Ahab uh, goes to, um, goes to from, Ahab from Israel, goes down to Judah, Jehoshaphat, says, will you join your army with mine so we can attack Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat says, well, have we inquired of the prophet of the Lord? Ahab says, I don't like the prophets of the Lord. They never say anything good about me. 
but my 450 prophets said it's all good to go. We'll win. Let's go. Well, Je- Jehoshaphat says we need the prophet. We've got to have the prophet. So they call in Micaiah. Micaiah comes in and says, first thing, um, go, you're going to win. Ahab says to the prophet, how many times have I told you to speak the truth in my presence? So Ahab knew he, w- he was lying to him at that point. Okay. So then Micaiah goes on and says, um, well, the, uh, the Lord had a conference in heaven and said to his uh, spirits in heaven, how can, we, how can we lure Ahab into battle with Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? And one spirit said this, and one spirit said that. And finally, a spirit stood up and said, I know how we can lure him. How, said the Lord? I will go and be a lying spirit in the prophets of Ahab's prophets and, uh, and uh, lure him into battle. And the Lord said, go and do it. That's all in Scripture. It's all in Kings. This is the prophet of the Lord, Micaiah. This is how, how do we understand the prophets? How do we under, how do we relate to them? If a prophet comes, maybe we have a modern day prophet, little leather books we have. And we read something from the modern day prophet. Does she, does she, does the scripture, when you read the word, is it supposed to replace your thinking processes? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Come from the prophet, must be so. Prophet of the Lord said, let's come back and eat. Angel visit, it must be. Let's go eat. Wendell. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through whatever. If a prophet comes and it comes to pass, but he says something against the Lord, then you're not to follow him, even though it comes to pass. Nice. Did you hear that? Even if a prophet prophesies something that comes to pass, if he speaks against the Lord, you're not to follow him. So how do we relate to prophets? According to the thus saith the Lord. According to thus saith. So, the, so we have a thus saith the Lord. You're a first century Christian, just converted. Peter, the apostle, is come to our church today. Would we be privileged? <laughs> Wouldn't we, to, to hear the words from Peter? And he begins to tell us how we should not be socializing with the Gentiles and how the Jews should remain separate and continue to observe the various um, you know, regimented structure that they had. And um, this is the apostle of the Lord. We should take him at his word, shouldn't we? Paul, of course, has to come along and rebuke him publicly because he was wrong. But we have the, we have the apostle. How could he be wrong? Yes. In this specific story of today's lesson, as well as uh, others where there have been a direct conflict, what appears from the story and what I've gotten to know in a personal relationship with my Heavenly Father, when there is this direct conflict, and I was asking about it, I had a very distinct impression of, do you trust me? My answer is absolutely 100%. And so if it doesn't justify in your mind with this story, listen and walk with me today. Have a personal relationship Rebuke Satan and send him away so you know you're listening to the right one. And then let me just walk with you. And if it's a question that I cannot resolve in my mind absolutely now, then did that story make a difference in my salvation? No. Do I honestly feel like I can trust God totally now? Yes. I'm good with that. Nice fallback position. But let's see if we can't find some answer. I like the position. There are things we can't understand. We need to have that trust. We need to say, okay, I can't figure this out. I'm still walking with the Lord because he's shown me he's trustworthy. One day I'm going to figure that out. I like that. That's good. Today's the day for the story, though. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if we can't figure this out. What about, what about you're an angel in heaven? Lucifer, sinless being, perfect and holy in all his ways, comes from the presence of God. I mean, who more could you trust than Lucifer? Covering cherub. I mean, if he said it, it must be true, right? Are you seeing, a, are you seeing the lesson I'm trying to bring home here? 
Lucifer comes from God's presence as the light bearer, the one who bears light and truth about God. For millennia, he was the light bearer. He came and enlightened beings about God. But then one day something changed. He wasn't shedding light anymore. Should there ever be a time when an intelligent son and daughter of God surrenders their thinking to someone else? Never. Never. Not even a prophet of the Lord. Not even an angel of the Lord. What does Paul tell us in Galatians? Even if an angel come with a different gospel, don't believe it. This is the point I'm making. I saw a hand in the back somewhere. Yes. Well, in this story, um, God spoke directly to this prophet to begin with. And then he chose not to say, well, God hasn't told me different, so I'm going to stick with what I've got. He decides to listen to somebody else who supposedly has this other message. Well, if God's speaking to you, why would he have to speak through somebody else? I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Excellent. Well said. Exactly right. This prophet had God already spoke to him directly. And when someone else comes, well, the angel of the Lord killed me, and I'm prophet of the Lord. The word of the Lord says you're supposed to come home. The answer is, you know what? If God wants me to come home to you, he is perfectly capable of communicating that to me. And since he hasn't communicated that to me, um, sorry, I can't do it. Even if I think you're telling the truth, even if I believe you had a message from the Lord, the Lord hasn't communicated that message to me. True? Right. Yes. Uh, I heard stories told of people uh, from time to time who get messages of the Lord that a particular person is supposed to be their spouse. The Lord has told me you're supposed to be my spouse. And the wise answer, of course, is, well, when the Lord wants me to be your spouse, I'm sure he can tell me. Because <laughs> he hasn't told me. It ain't happening. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's see if we can understand some, some of these. Oh, yeah, another comment. I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to comment on, on this whole prophet. Yeah. And, and kind of tie that into what we do sometimes. I don't think he had any clue of what he was starting. I think he wanted this guy to come home. He was really proud of this kid. He went and stood before the king. He wanted to come and have supper with him. So he's like, and he just said something. I, you know, I'm reading a lot of conjecture into this, but I guess it doesn't say directly that he repented. But at the end, he mourned. He took the guy, buried him, and said, I want to be buried right next to him. And, and I think that sometimes really small things that we do can have huge impact. It may even cost people their lives. And I, you know, I, I want to defend that old prophet because I feel like it, it, his story paints him in a really negative light, but I think he was just trying to get the kid to come home with him, you know. He was proud of him or something. I don't know. It's a lot of conjecture, but it doesn't... He doesn't He's either proud... Or envious. He's, hey, I'm the old prophet. What are you, 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 you usurping my authority? I've been prophesying up here. I'm the old prophet. I'm the senior prophet. Okay, you're the junior prophet. You didn't come and check with me before you went in there and got. Could have been that. We don't know. Could have been what you say too. I mean, it's all speculation. But we do know the scripture says he lied to him, and he did lie to him. Yeah. Okay. So the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet is to is to serve a purpose. Let's look at Jonah real quick. For example, it's in a little side. Why do you think God chose Jonah? He chose, he, he chose Jonah because he wanted to reach Nineveh. Now, Jonah had a heart for Nineveh, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he had a heart of hatred for Nineveh. Yes, he hated Nineveh. He wanted to destroy Nineveh. Yes, he had no heart of compassion at all. And so when the Lord said, go and preach uh, this, this warning and message to Nineveh, Jonah says, I'm, I'm heading the other way. I'm getting in a boat. I'm heading out to sea. Now, what happened? We know the story. Okay? And a big great fish came, swallowed him up, and burped him up on the ground, right? What was the god of the Ninevites? Dagon, the fish god. 
Okay, so imagine, just imagine, there's some uh, people from Nineveh out there well, on the shore, and here comes, uh, here comes this big old fish, and bloop, here comes a man out of the fish, and he's got a message from the Lord. <laughs> oh my goodness. Our God just caught, sent this guy, and he was a little, he's a little white, three days from fish acid, bleaching his skin white, and you know, I mean, he, he probably had quite an impression. They listened, didn't they? They listened. I think, I think Jonah was chosen. Because God knows how things are going to, knows what people are going to, and he knew exactly how it was going to play out. It was, and it served his purpose. The same thing with Micaiah's story. Micaiah wasn't telling us how angels in heaven work. It was, don't, don't get this idea from Micaiah's prophecy that there are angels that go from God's kingdom and, and are lying in people's mouth. That didn't happen. What, 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 what Micaiah was communicating was to Ahab. Ahab worships the God of flies. He was trying to get this very primitive king to understand your prophets are lying. And so the way to do it is God has made it because this is how he thinks. He thinks in a very primitive way. Okay. Um, wh- why do you think the young prophet died? Why did the young prophet die? He chose to distrust God. He chose to distrust God. Does that mean he's being punished? No, God. Back to our punishment question. Yes. It goes back to miracles. It goes back to miracles. Why, why does God have miracles? And this is obviously, here you have a lion that kills the guy, but doesn't eat him. Or the donkey. Right, right. So this is clearly a, a miraculous event. It's not a, you know, he, he went in the, the wrong forest. There's an answer. Why? I think he died to, put, to make emphasis to the whole message that God was trying to, you know, he was just trying to get their attention and, and help them to understand that they need to be a people who are willing to listen and learn. And, and to put a stop to this idolatry that they were heading towards. So this is just more emphasis, like the shrinking arm. Do you think that the end of the young prophet, how he ended up, was agreeable to the young prophet? No. Do you think the young prophet had in his heart a desire to do the Lord's work? Do you think he wanted to see the, the kingdom of God's true kingdom move forward? Do you think he wanted to be an influence to help bring Israel back to God? Do you think that once he realized, now think this through with me, what's the impact? If this prophet goes, announces at the time he's cursing the altar, at the time he's giving his prophecy, at the time the miracle of the arm is shrunk and restored, he says, the Lord has instructed me, I cannot eat, I cannot drink, I must go back a different way. So he's got the word of the Lord, he's told what he's to do. What happens if this prophet who gives this prophecy disobeys that word of the Lord without consequence? What will the conclusion be about his previous prophecy? So once he realizes he's been deceived, once the young prophet realizes that his prophecy will be of no effect, his impact, his witness, the work he's doing for the Lord will be destroyed, do you think he might have been at peace with what needed to happen to restore the impact of his prophecy? That he needed to die? Like Moses. Yes? I think that the fact that he finished eating and drinking shows that he was at peace. He He didn't panic, did he? No. He didn't panic. He didn't run out of there. He didn't love his life so much as to shrink from death. Didn't love his life so much as... I'm going to suggest that that this this young prophet was a true man of God who was tricked. 
And when he realized he was tricked, he was remorseful and repentant. Oh, Lord, I am so sorry. I had never wanted to misrepresent you. I had no idea that this was going to happen. Lord, I'm at peace. If I need to die on the way home to restore your name and to help this prophecy to bring uh, 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 repentance to Israel, it's okay, Lord. It's okay. I think that's the heart of the, of the young prophet. What do you think? Yeah. If, if he had not been disciplined, Jeroboam could have used that as an excuse for his disobedience. Well, that's exactly the point. Yes, if uh, if the young prophet would have just walked back without consequence, then Jeroboam and everyone else would have said, see, look, why should I obey? The young prophet didn't do what he was told. Why should I obey? So it would have opened up the whole can of worms and excuse. So I think the young prophet, having realized how he was tricked, realized that this needed to happen in order to reach the hardened hearts of the people in Israel. Yes? Don't you think he kind of opened himself up for that by not going straight away? Sure. By stopping, hanging out under the tree, and not going, you know, I mean, kind of trusting his own judgment versus what God had expressly told him? Well, did, did, uh, until the time he went back with the prophet, I, I know the lesson makes some issue about the fact he was sitting under a tree. And the lesson says, okay, sat under the tree, wasn't really following the word of the Lord, he was la- lollygagging around, opened up uh, opportunity for ten- it's, it's, uh, you know, it's where they found him. So if the guy on the donkey, let's say he makes it back to Judah, crosses the border, he's three steps into Judah. Oh, there's the border. I'm in Judah now. And the donkey catches up to him. The man with the donkey catches up and says, hey, come back and eat with me. I'm prophet of the Lord. And he lied to me. He goes back and eat now. That would have been safe. Okay, touch, touch base. I'm now safe. <laughs> I mean, the prophet, this, this old prophet's on his way to get him. I mean, he's, he's on a mission. He's, he's hunting him down. So you know, one possibility is he's just lazy and he sits down and chilling. I had a good day today. Uh, um, cursed an altar, uh, withered an arm, restored an arm. Boy, it was a really good day at work today. Man, chilling back and t- counting up his uh, notches in his belt. Could be. Yeah, no, but it, food or drink. You know, he might have just been tired and well, that's yeah. Right. But it could show his attitude too. It's kind of like you know. I, you know, he could have had a stone in his sandal and was changing, he was getting the, getting the stone out of his sandal. I mean, you know, he might have been tired and resting. We don't really know. All we know is under the tree. And we can read issues into it. Um, I know the lesson tries to read issues into it. I think that the guy was on his way to try and seduce him back. And, and, and he might have found him at the tree, he might have found him further down the road, but he was on his way. So, yeah. It may have been cultural. Middle Eastern as well as European culture, you have siesta. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't do anything between. It's hot. You don't do anything between twelve and two. So you're resting under the tree. He's on his way, doing his duty. This is my stop along the way. Rest stop. Have you ever gone to the interstate and needed a rest stop? Oh. Hey, maybe it was rest stop time. An Englishman in the noonday sun. Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday's lesson. So Jerem Boehm invites the prophet home for dinner and offers the prophet some gifts uh, of various kinds. Um, and, of course, the, the, the prophet tells him no. The lesson suggests that um, God instructed him not to accept anything because um, when one accepts gifts, it puts one in the debt of the giver. What are your thoughts about that? If I, have a, if I give a gift and then expect you to owe me, have I actually given you a gift? It's a pride. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever had a gift given to you with strings attached? Yes. Have you ever had gifts given with no strings attached? Yes. Which do you like better? No strings. Okay. Okay. Um, 
When we give gifts, we can give gifts because we just want to bless. No strings, yours. want to bless, uplift. That's a gift. We can also give gifts to manipulate, to influence, to get people to like us, to indebt people to us, to owe us. We can do that too, can't we? We're told that God gave us the gift of his son. Why? What type of gift was it? Strings attached? Well, how many times we're told that because of the gift of the son, we're indebted to God? Oh, a lot of silence on that one. It's not a string attached, it's a choice. It's a gift of unselfish love that you have the option to accept and receive, or you have the option to shine. So was the gift freely given without strings attached? So we're not indebted? But bad things happen um, when you don't accept the gift. Bad things happen if we don't accept the gift. Um, yes, Tim human perspective to, to attach strings because we are very we have a very difficult time giving things freely let's see if we can't I, I like what you're saying i like what you're saying let's see if we can't discern um in human in, in our human experience in our knowledge base when somebody gives a gift and there's strings attached and the person they've given the gift to doesn't respond doesn't no reciprocity no returned favor that is expected. How does the one who's given the gift react? Angry. Say, it, say it, I heard it. Angry, indignant. There's an expectation. You've broken the unstated agreement, uh, the quid pro quo. I've given, you haven't returned what was expected. There's an angry and often punitive, see if I ever give you a gift again. Yeah. Isn't that true? Okay. How do we often say God will react to those who don't accept the gift of his son. Whoa. Are we actually making the case that God gave the gift to indebt us and manipulate us? Or in fact, does God react differently than what we're constantly told? How will he react if we don't accept his gift? He cries. You see this at Mount Olivet. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you as a hen takes her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Or we see it in Hosea, Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I let you go? How can I give you up? But you are bent on leaving me. This is the true picture. Judas washing his feet. Judas, Jesus getting down and washing the feet of the betrayer. Yes, your hands up. The real strings attached are the strings of sin imposed on us by Satan. The strings are broken by the gift of God. Oh, I like it very much. It's right. The strings that enslave us, that tie us, are the strings of sin, our carnal nature, the guilt, the shame, all these things that, that happen. And, and, of course, God's grace breaks it. But do you see how this gift of God can almost be presented as God's... Like we give gifts. I mean, it, it can be presented that way, can't it? And they even present God as being angry and is going to punish if you don't accept the gift. It's like, I've got a gift for you. And if you don't accept it, I'm going to beat you. Please don't, she says. Yes. I think it's our human nature to operate from the if-then. If I give you this, then. And we try to put God into that, even if we are trying to think very globally. We still operate on that linear line. And God, I don't think, ever goes on that line. I don't think God is the if-then mindset. No, I, I like that. Yeah, no, he's always doing what it says. He is always doing what it's right. 
because it's the right thing to do. But sometimes it appears as if he is because we try to line it up that way. And I, I think that it's hard for us in our limited, we only have the we can see. And so, but if we saw from God's sight, I, we wouldn't align him that way, I don't think. I agree. I completely agree. Couple, uh, Wednesday's lesson. Let's go to Wednesday's lesson. The the uh, about the prophet, um, and and the idea of how was it that he got deceived? Was his problem that he believed a lie, or was his problem that he didn't hold to the truth he knew? Are those the same thing? Is it just splitting hairs? Well, I'll read to you. We don't have a lot of time to debate it. Patriarchs and Prophets, page fifty-five. Eve, Eve believed the words of Satan, and her belief in the falsehood. Um, uh, we already read that. It says, in the judgment, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie. Not be condemned because we conscientiously believed a lie. But because they did not believe the truth, because they neglected the opportunity to learn the truth. Now, it says in Thessalonians that the wicked are destroyed because they did not love the truth. Did not love the truth. I want to connect this to you, how this, because we often hear a lot in church about obedience. What genuine obedience is, is simply having a heart that loves the truth. That's what it is. A heart attitude towards truth. The word in Greek in the New Testament that's translated obedience is the word hypokue, which means basically hypo means under or humble, and akua, acoustical, to listen, and it means a humble willingness to listen. A willingness to be taught, a willingness to follow the truth, a love for what's true. And, uh, and those who have that hard attitude, because we're all finite. When Christ comes back, there won't be one person on earth who knows everything in the Bible 100% correct. We all will have to be taught. There's all more to learn. And through all eternity, we will be learning. And so those who are ready, those who are obedient have that hard attitude that I can learn. I'm willing to grow in truth. I'm not going to be simply told, you tell me to think, I'll think it. I won't ask any questions. I, I have to be shown and I want to be educated. I want to understand. I want to comprehend. I want to reason with you. But my heart is open to be led and taught versus those who, um, well, we've formed, formed our belief. We now have the truth. We've arrived. We've put up our doctrines. Nothing else can impenetrate because we now have our truths. Um, those religious leaders in Christ's day were disobedient. Even though they did all the things that, that, the, that the rule book said to do, they were disobedient because they did not, have, did not have hearts open to grow in truth. Does that make sense? And then we'll have a couple of minutes left, and I want to get to, in Thursday's lesson, in Thursday's lesson it says this, second paragraph, the greatest threat to our faith is not persecution from the outside by political powers, but rather false prophets and teachers who come from within us and who claim to speak in God's name. And if you look through history, that's exactly true. And I just want to close today with some tests or some things you can use to protect yourself from getting led astray from powerful speakers and teachers. Number one, you might you want to take the notes, or these will be in the notes so you can get them off the web. Number one, always think for yourself. Never surrender your mind or judgment to another. Never simply be told what to think. Be persuaded by the evidence. Think for yourself, number one. Uh, two, require that your beliefs, whatever it is you believe, be evidence-based. Be evidence-based, not feel-good-based. Evidence-based. And require the evidence to harmonize. Okay, so much time we, we, we preach something and we may pull a text out of passage, a text, a passage out of scripture, and we say, so oh, here's a text, but it, it, the way it's being presented, it contradicts with some other text. So that you know something's not right. They have to harmonize perfectly. Um, use all the evidence available. 
And what I mean by that is the evidence of inspiration, the evidence of science. Who wrote nature? Who created nature? Nature. God's, God's kingdom is in nature. It says in Romans chapter 120, his divine power is seen in what he has made to the men without excuse. So the evidence of nature and the evidence of experience, your own experience, all three together are rightly understood, perfectly harmonized. Use all the evidence. One of the greatest things I see the theologians trick us with is they ignore evidence, uh, evidence of science and evidence of experience and they go only with scripture and they create theological circles that are contra- contradicted by evidences of science and, script, uh, and experience. And putting them all together, there's always perfect harmony. Um, listen to perspectives that differ from your own, but filter those perspectives through the lens of your own sanctified judgment, comparing it with the truth of God's word and science. Establish testable parameters to compare theories, such as the law of love we've talked about in this class many times, the law of liberty. These are testable parameters that, that are not bending. You can, you can compare your thoughts. And the law of worship, by beholding we become changed. These are laws that are constants in the universe, and any theory can be compared to those. And then use Jesus as the touchstone or lens through which all of your doctrines about God must be filtered. If, it, if it's not true in the life of Jesus... It's not true about God. I mean, that's just a good standard to live by. If they're making God out to look like something that's different than Jesus, there's something wrong. So these are some principles you can use to help protect yourself. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, you are a God of, of incredible majesty, beauty, love, power, but also great humility, great gentleness. And you really value our free will, appreciation, and adoration of you. And we understand that cannot be forced. Might and power, miraculous signs won't, won't get us there. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would pour it out into our hearts and minds, enlighten our minds, put the pieces of the puzzle together that we can see the true picture of your character. Let us have wisdom and discernment as you promised us that we can go out and not only understand it, but begin to communicate these truths to our friends and neighbors in our community and that the light of your glory may, may lighten this world and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.